Hey, it's Tom Kratz and I have a question for you. Are you living life on your terms? And if you're not, what are you doing about it? Okay, so now that I got the uh, public service announcement out of the way, I'm going to get on with this episode. So on this episode, Nick is uh, fresh back from his vacation with the family, and we sat down to talk about two things. The number one thing is how the modern money system works. Most people do not understand this. I wanted to bring some clarity. Nick wanted to bring some clarity, so we talked about how the modern money system works. So we talk about that, and then we go into some of the biggest trends that are affecting real estate, even as all the chaos and the stock market is going on and all this other noise is going out in there in the world. One of the biggest trends is some of the latest population data is out. You got to hear some of this information. We share that on this episode. The population information is really critical as real estate investors because it drives demand for properties. So we talk about money creation and some of the latest trends around population. This is a bit of a real estate update in these two areas. And I think you'll get a couple gems from that. Hopefully you're going to get an idea or two, something different to think about, at least get you thinking about how money is created in today's world. And if you are listening to this and you want some real estate information around rental properties, rent to own strategies, student rental properties, Nick and I have this book that we put out called the Canadian Real Estate Investing Blueprint. It has some of our best information that we've ever put together in a big book format. You can get a free digital download of that book at rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash books. We have examples of different properties, different rental ads for different properties. We had somebody who had never rented out a property themselves before. They had always hired people to do it on their behalf. They read this book and with the strategies they picked up from inside there, they told us they were able to rent out their property for the first time by themselves. So if you want some of this information or you want to understand how student rentals work or rent to own strategies work, we have examples of different properties, some of the agreements that we use and that kind of thing. It's all in there. The Canadian Real Estate Investing Blueprint, that's at rockstarinnercircle.com for forward slash books. And the reason that we're giving away books for free on our website is we're hoping that we can share enough valuable information with you that one day they, that you might say something like, Hey, I like these guys. Maybe I'll work with them and the whole rockstar team. And you'll come out and start working with us, 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 can't speak us, us as a rockstar inner circle member. You come out and check us out at our offices. Um, if you don't know, we are based out of Oakville, Ontario. However, we work with investors right across the entire GTA and Golden Horseshoe. We have investors buying properties in Belleville, Barrie, Clarington, Oshawa, Kitchener, Waterloo, Guelph, London, um, everywhere in the Niagara region, Hamilton, of course, Stony Creek area, Brantford, Ontario, and then GTA proper with some of the different condo releases that we have access to. So right across the GTA and Golden Horseshoe, we're working with investors. So we give away our book in hopes that one day you'll see enough value here at Rockstar that perhaps we'll work together. So that's why we're doing what we do. I think that's enough. With that, let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. Nick, for real now, like all joking aside, can you hear me? No, it's a little <laughs> bit quiet. No, you're quiet. <laughs> Speak up. I don't know. Um, okay, listen. It's these we, fancy new acoustic things that you, you got in your office. I know. We're, Finally, we're, if you're listening to this, we're, we're close to doing video podcasts. We have the acoustics in the ceiling, but there's another acoustical panel coming here, and the, one of the lights is up, and the, the, the boom stand for the other lights up. We're well, getting there. Almost there, because it's, go, it's going video. 
Because you think you're that pretty that everyone wants to watch you. No, I know. I look at myself <laughs> in the mirror. I'm like, I can't believe how old I'm getting. No, it's definitely not for my prettiness that we're going on the video. You know, I noticed that too, because I like from the pictures on vacation. So I, I forget. I took more pictures on this vacation than, than any other one in life. Because you're and very vain? Uh, not less of me, more of the kids with all the Disney characters. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> but, um, but the ones I was in, I was like, holy cow. Yeah, there's no like, I can't pretend that I look young anymore. But yeah. it's funny because like 40 doesn't seem old at all. But when, when I was 20, it seemed old. 20 seemed old. Doesn't I'm three years away now. from 50. Yeah, yeah, that's old now for sure. Now that I've, and now that I've just offended a whole ton of people that are listening to this. Someone listening to this is 52 is like, screw you, asshole. Yes. Um, okay, no, if you're 52, you're not old at all. Um, well, according to you, 52 means 48. You're just barely over half, right? 48 years left to live. We're all going to live to 100 with new technology. I think if you take care of yourself, we're living to 100, but I don't know. I don't know anymore. I don't know all the stuff going on in the world right now. So we're recording this at a weird time. Like, what coronavirus is in full effect and uh, on top of that stock market got stopped i think it was like limit down this morning so they halted trading so it was limit down last night and this morning twice correct that's what well, stock market can't out. open i think it's like futures trading or options yeah, i'm can't talking open a little than, more than what a five percent drop and then i, and I don't understand after hours trading i don't understand so but I, it got stopped last night futures got stopped and then i think it got stopped again today so that's twice in 24 hours they actually mm-hmm. halted trading Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. understand futures market entirely, but I know they did halt futures market before it opened. Yeah, this is crazy. This is, uh, you know, when I say this is crazy, but it's stuff we've been expecting to see for so many years. It's not actually that crazy. Well, we were just waiting for the catalyst and it ended up, this ended up being the catalyst. A lot of people will blame it on the virus, but it, there are way. Yeah, the bubble other, already existed. Totally. Yeah, yeah. That was just kind of the catalyst for it all, or the, the pin, I guess. And I think that's why I wanted to talk about this particular point. So one of the things on this episode that I want to chat about is how money is created. Um, This concept is so misunderstood that I think really once you grasp it, you have a better opportunity to take advantage of things in the economy for yourself and your family. Yeah, except it's so unbelievable that it's kind of hard to grasp at first. I know. The first time I figured, like that I found out, I understood, I I guess it's actually relatively simple, but I didn't fully understand it because I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Doesn't like, make that's sense. actually how it works. Yeah. 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 So here, I want to share this. And, and what got me thinking about this again, there was this um, article on the tele, I think it was the Telegraph in the UK. And the headline was this. The headline said, 85% of politicians in the United Kingdom didn't know how money was created when asked. So already that is astonishing to me that just think the politicians who are in power making decisions, the financial the, decisions, the financial yeah, yeah, decisions yeah. of the country do not understand how money is created in their own modern economy. And if there's 85 in the UK, I believe it's probably, this is going to sound horrible. I think it's like 95 in Canada for Canadian politicians. If you're a Canadian politician, yeah, I'm totally trashing Canadian politicians. I, I don't think Canadian politicians have a clue how money is created. A clue. Should so. we call out Trudeau? Should we should say maybe Trudeau doesn't. And if Trudeau is listening and he does, he should reach out to us directly to prove if it. If we don't hear from Trudeau within the next 30 days, we know that that means he, he doesn't, doesn't know. know. <laughs> <laughs> so... Clock is ticking. Um, anyway, so here's how it is. I'm going to read a couple of parts of this. Tele- the headline of this article, if you want to Google it up, is how the actual magic money tree works. Um, it's, it's pretty cool. It's got a few points in here that we've shared, and I, I want to share on this podcast here. Um, but the author, she has these comments in here, these little lines in here that I think are really instructive. So here's one of them. It says, how is money created? Some is created by the state, but usually in a financial emergency. 
For instance, the crash gave rise to quantitative easing, money pumped directly into the economy by the government. So I want to stop right there. Some of money is created by the state, and that's usually created only during times of financial crisis. We could be facing another one of those right now as we speak, but that's one way money is created. But here's the next line that kind of just blows you away. The vast majority of money, 97%, comes into being when a bank extends a loan. I just want to repeat this. 97% of money comes into existence when a bank extends a loan. So I, just to repeat this, when you and I go to the bank to get a new mortgage on an income property or for a mortgage for your own home, when you take the pen out of your pocket and you sign the papers of those mortgage documents, you are actually creating brand new money. The bank does not have that. Let's say it's a mortgage of $500,000. The bank does not have that $500,000 sitting in a bank account ready to transfer you. It's the act of you putting pen to paper to create a new mortgage that creates brand new money. The bank has the legal authority to create money and put it into your bank account, which then you and your lawyer will send over to the, to the seller of the property to pay for the property that you're just purchasing. But it's you, it, when you create that mortgage, are creating new money. And I just want to break this out. 97% of money is created in, um, in this way. And here's how it's broken out. 27% of that um, goes to other financial uh, corporations. So when a bank is lending to another financial institution, that's 27% of money being created. 50% is going to mortgages. So mortgages create 50% of the 97%. 8% to high cost credit. So that's like overdrafts and credit cards. And 15% to non-financial corporations. So that is to the productive economy. So when business are borrowing and they have to uh, create a new loan to borrow money, 15% of money is created for that. So 50%, pretty much 50% of all new money is created by new mortgages. And all the other lending is to other financial institutions, other businesses, or credit cards. So another way you and I create money is when you later today go to the store and use your credit card to pay for a meal, pay for gas, buy movie tickets, whatever it is, you are literally creating new money. That money did not exist. The, the credit card corporations have the right to create the money and send it over to the merchant's bank account who you are buying something from. So money is created when you extend a loan. That's how it works in the modern economy. Nick, have I said that clearly enough? Because I feel like I'm like trying to articulate. No, you are, but it just, it still seems unbelievable as I stutter while I say yeah. it. Right, because it doesn't make sense. So like how, but, but it does make sense, but it doesn't seem logical. So like if you spend the money on your visa, if I'm spending a hundred bucks, it's, it makes sense because there's no hundred dollars in existence, but you'd think that the somewhere the asset has to be there to be able to pay off the, um, the merchant in that case. Yeah, it's totally, it's totally crazy. So um, I, I just want to have some, there's some myths here in this other thing that I'm going to share with you in a second. I want to read it. A couple of myths. Um, there's this white paper on the UK's uh, Bank of England website called Money Creation in the Modern Economy. If you want access to this white paper, just go to my Twitter handle. So it's at Tom Karadza on Twitter. It's pinned to the top of my Twitter feed. It's called Money Creation in the Modern Economy. Listen to this. The reality of money is created today differs from the description found in some economics textbooks. Rather than banks receiving deposits when households save and then lending them out, bank lending creates deposits. Think of that, Nick. Bank lending creates the deposits. Everyone's always under the assumption that the banks have a certain amount of deposits and with fractional reserve banking, you can lend out a certain multiple of those deposits. This line is saying 
households, uh, sorry, the reality of how money is created today differs from the description found in some economics textbooks. Rather than banks receiving deposits when households save and then lend them out, bank lending creates the deposits. Yeah, creates the deposit to the seller. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. but, so but there needs yeah. to be the borrowing action of borrowing to create money. Otherwise, yep. money is not created in this modern economic system. It's insane. In normal times, the central bank does not fix the amount of money in circulation, nor is central bank money multiplied up into more loans and deposits. So if you want access to this white paper, it's like completely, to me, it's completely fascinating and it describes how money is created. But I want to flip back to a couple other points here for a second. There is this awesome, you know what, I'm going to look it up. There's this awesome chart that shows how when debt, uh, when debt really started being used and uh, you know what, before I get there, I'll circle back to it. I want to look it up because I want to get the dates right of when it started being used because it correlates to a lot of stuff. So go ahead and then I'll, I'll circle back. Yeah, so in this article from the Telegraph that I was first referencing, Jesus, is it the Telegraph? I'll have to look at this in a second. Give me a second. Like, can you see I'm trying to zoom in here? Where is it? Does it say anywhere? At the bottom. The Guardian. Sorry, it's The Guardian. It's an article from The Guardian, How the Actual Money Tree Works. The author's name, her name is Zoe Williams. Um, and then she has this line in here that's really cool. Um, it says, what's wrong with that? Like, what's wrong with the system of money? On the corporate financial side, bank lending inflates asset prices, which concentrates wealth in the hands of the wealthy. So it's something, if you're new to us, we've been talking about that kind of stuff for a long time, that this whole system basically favors people who own assets. But I, I love this next line. On the mortgage side, house prices rise to meet the amount the lender is prepared to lend rather than being moored to wages. So I just want to repeat this. On the mortgage side, so the problem with this system is that on the mortgage side, house prices rise to meet the amount the lender is prepared to lend rather than being moored to wages. So basically, this system is designed to have assets rise in price according to how much banks are willing to lend. It has no correlation to incomes. So when people say, well, how are people going to be able to like buy houses or afford houses? The current modern money system has no correlation to income and asset prices. None at all. There is no, absolutely no correlation. And the gap is just getting wider and wider between incomes and asset prices like houses. And it's, and it's speeding up because, so I looked at the graph that I was talking about with with kind of the consumer debt credit creation and the consumer credit levels. And like I thought it started, I don't have the exact year by year here, but it started basically in about 1980 is when credit really became a thing. Prior to that, most people were putting larger down payments on stuff and paying things off and there wasn't as much. Because consumer- interest rates were high and you actually saved money, you didn't want that. Yeah, so there wasn't as much credit in the world. But then what that's, when all this stuff started happening with the credit and, and to your, your point about the banking and the money creation, which then flew in, f- flowed into other systems, um, other assets, and started changing the kind of the price levels and widening the gap, you know, between asset prices, and incomes and that type of stuff. It's all based on debt. So the more debt that's in the system, the more money that's in the system. And it just, it's weird. It's like it, it almost, you know, Kennedy used to always say that my, uh, Money has a mind of its own, and it's almost like that because it just flows. It naturally is looking for yield someplace. It goes into the hands of certain people that know how to use it, and it looks for yield someplace in different assets, and that's why these things have happened. So it's 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 multiplied from about the '80s until now. I don't know. I guess it was like below. It, it was even it was like 0.25 to four trillion now. So whatever that multiple is, it's huge, and that's that's what's kind of caused all this. So that's where the, all this creations come over the last what's that now 40 years. And it sucks because no one explains these rules to you that like you basically, if you're not, and the way I explain it is that like the way the money system works and the way it should be explained is that you have option number A, option number A, (laughs) option number A, (laughs) option number A, I need to go back to school. (laughs) 
Option number A, option number A is this, that you, uh, you either, uh, get a job and make money and sorry, and you make money, but that's not really making money. You're just trading money. That's already in the system. Like when you exchange, you sell a good or a service, or you exchange your time for money, you're just trading for money that's in the system. But if you buy a house and you literally sign a mortgage paperwork, you're creating money. And then some people will say this to me, well, that's, I don't get it. I don't really benefit. Like, you know, I still have a mortgage on that property, but listen to, listen to this. If the house that you just purchased when you created that money goes up in value as houses tend to do over time, when you get a HELOC on that house, and you put a HELOC on there and you sign the paper for the HELOC because you now bought a property that was 500,000, let's say it goes up to a million dollars and you throw a $500,000 home line of uh, home equity line of credit on there. And I, I know I'm, I'm kind of rounding up. I, you can't actually go right to the 100% value of the home, but you know what I mean. It's, it, you bought for 500, it's worth a million. So you throw a $500,000 um, equity line of credit on there and you sign the paper for that. You have now created another $500,000. You created $500,000 that did not exist. You can dip into that equity line and pull it out and buy cars, go on vacations, buy Rolexes, do whatever the heck, buy another property, do whatever you want with it. You've literally created $500,000 of new money. And the bank gets to charge you interest on it the bank for gets, the ability to create it. Yeah. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, they have no inventory of it. They just charge you interest on something that they can create from thin air for you when you sign the papers. But that's the two ways to uh, the, the the two ways money works. You either trade for money that's in the system, typically with a job or you know buying and selling goods and services, or you create it out of thin air by signing paperwork like we're talking about right now. And I want to read a couple other little quotes here, Nick. It says, um, the lender, from this system, the lender benefits enormously from larger mortgages and longer periods of indebtedness. The homeowner benefits slightly from a bigger asset, but obviously spends longer in debt servitude. So the lender benefits enormously. The homeowner benefits slightly. And the last part is the renter loses out completely. And this is when I know people talk, I know people come to me and say, well, Tom, you don't have to own a house and you don't have, you can get ahead renting. And I'm like... Well, you know, every time I do the analysis, you, I guess you can kind of sort of get ahead, you know, if you kind of save the money that you didn't use fixing your air conditioning or your roof and stuff like that. But it's much easier to get ahead when you buy and own good assets. Like you always talk about self-liquidating assets. Well, I was just, yeah, I was going to say any, okay, so right. You don't have to own a house so you can rent. That's fine. But you know, in our opinion, at least you have to own other assets. So if it's not going to be your own house, that's fine but get busy owning, owning other things, you know? Totally. Yeah. And then, so that leaves us to a question that we're asking, like everybody we work with is like, where are you in the money creation equation? Are you creating money with what we just described? Or are you trading for money that's already in the system? And there's nothing wrong with trading for money that's in the system, a uh, system through a job or selling goods and services. Of course, like Nick and I do, you know, that's, that's totally normal, but you want to be creating money. And one of the only ways you and I can create money, cause we're not banks. But there's a very powerful thing that happens when we buy good assets. We create money when we take on the loan. And if you can buy a good asset, like Nick's saying, like a self-liquidating asset, an asset that pays for itself through its own cash flow, there's possibly nothing better. You're creating money, the asset pays for itself, and then in the future when it appreciates, you can create more money from well, the same act, asset. So you're, see, the way I look at it is you're acting as like a quasi bank, right? So the bank gets to create the money and then charge you interest on it. So you're not really able to do that. But however, you're taking the newly created money and then you're asking someone, if it's, if we're talking about rental real estate, then you're now able to get someone else to pay off that loan. So they are able to pay for that money for you. So they're able to pay for that money and the bank's interest. So it's kind of, you know, you, you mentioned how like 
the closer you are to the money creation, the better off, right? So because you're only one step away from the creation of the money, you have more options with it. You're able to do more things with it. If you're five steps away, then you can't do certain things. So that's the that's kind of the difference of, of you know, the, the way I look at it is, is you know, you're, you're still, you're not the bank, but you're kind of in you're some really ways. You're really close to being play, a bank. You're playing the bank because you're, you're, they're not paying off a mortgage, but they're paying rent and you're holding the asset, right? So it's a very similar, different terms, but similar setup. So it kind of works the same way. Totally. So, and listen, if you don't believe any of this, or if you want more detail, go to my Twitter handle at Tom Crads on Twitter. And I've linked to a bank of England white paper. The same thing applies to Canada. Um, the same concepts, even though this one's from the bank of England and the title of the white paper is money creation in the modern economy. It's linked right there. Just the first page alone or the first couple of pages is like mind blowing stuff. So if you've never been exposed to these ideas, go grab that on my Twitter handle and, uh, and I just it. want to talk about different things. Like if you think about how debts changed this world, so think about 1980, you know, I can barely think about, it. I was two years old. So, but if you, you know, understand kind of how well, you don't remember were, 1980, I'm pretty smart. I yeah. remember a lot of okay. stuff, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but th- like the, you know, all these kind of low interest loans or bad, you know, people suffering from bad credit and these credit repair companies that kind of came out of nowhere, the, um, the payday loan places, those types of things, those were not industries before. Like they weren't industries, and it's because the the amount of debt was didn't exist, so there wasn't there wasn't the demand for them. But as the amount of debt grew from all this these things that you're talking about, and to your point earlier about people not being educated about it, not knowing how to handle it, it created all these problems in the system, which allowed these other industries to come up, and in some ways, not so good as well. Because you know when the people are going to, so I realize sometimes you need to, but if you're borrowing money at a thirty percent interest rate off a department oh store credit card, or you know, or payday loans, oh my God, like department that, like, store credit cards. Remember those? Do they, they still were, have those? They were like 28%. I'm sure. Do you I remember those Eaton's credit cards? Yeah, I remember those. And that's <laughs> why I know because it was, I remember we had yeah, to Yeah, one was like 20 something percent. So we used to both work at Eaton's. Tom got there first. He got me the job. I was the younger brother. Mm-hmm. He was fortunate that I made him look good by being such a good employee. Yeah, there. yeah. So I'm also colorblind. And when you work in menswear, being colorblind, people are like, <laughs> hey, can you get me the burgundy sweater? I'm like, I don't know. Which one is it? This. <laughs> so I, I just showed up and tried to hide in the corner and be like, what's the little less, the least amount of work I can do. But, um, it's no wonder Eaton's went out. Do you remember their inventory? I just remember inventory arriving in the disaster. back and the manager would tell us we were young back then saying, go put these jeans away. I'm like, is anyone going to like check the amount of, je-? even then I was thinking, was disaster, does anyone yeah. check the amount of jeans in the box actually match what was ordered? And like, what's happening? That, uh, um, yeah, anyway, so that's why I remember. I remember the Eaton's credit card because you had to, to get your, your company discount, you had to buy on that credit card. And I looked at the terms and I'm like 28%. And even at that age, I guess that was my late teens. I understood that 28% was a rip off. Very bad. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, how can you pay this off? But you know, so, um, but it's just, it's amazing to me. Like this, this is like a new thing. If you think in like the grand scheme of things, when things started growing early eighties, it's just, it's less than 40 years old. This kind of credit boom. It's not, it's totally. not this thing. And the it, sad part is like, I feel like, so my son is going to go into university now next year. And I feel like in the education system, nowhere, nowhere, because I feel like my son's going to get this information because I'm definitely going to brainwash him and share this stuff with him. But how many people are going to post-secondary school education and not getting exposed to how money is created in the world? Like oh it's gosh, not yeah. even being discussed. The only thing being discussed is like go to get this kind of degree and it's good. I'm not, I'm not kind of, 
I'm not kind of shitting on education right now. I, I'm no, no, pro the, education. The degree matters. There's lots of different things you can learn, yeah, but there, but there I are just some mean, essentials in life. Yeah, like how money how money is created yeah. in the modern world is not discussed. And I guarantee you, if you go up to some professors in university, there you, you're going to just get like crazy looks when you'd say, hey, did you know money's created when banks extend a loan? They won't yeah, even... well, well, look, I was telling you earlier too, we had someone here for a class that I did, I guess a few weeks ago now. And um, that goes to a, a university and she is in the real estate program in the university. I don't know the exact name. I won't name the university. And um, what they're learning there, she came to one of our classes. She's like, and it was about investing, right? And she's like, we, we're not learning any of this stuff. Like we don't learn it. We've learned like the history of why the system is set up, the like the land registry system is set up the way it is and the, the, the process of transferring ownership and that type of stuff, which is all like, it's great if you want to know that, but it's also very important if you're talking about real estate to understand the ins and outs of basic ownership options with different people and maybe some financial options to it too, right? And um, yeah, historic appreciation, yeah. historic appreciation versus other things out in the marketplace, like yeah. all this kind of yeah. stuff. So she's asked us, well, I was there. So she said, you know, can you come in and give this to, the, I guess, the real estate, the program, the people in the program, which is something that looks like what we're doing later. But, but you know, it's 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 great if you can kind of shed some light on some stuff for people. Totally. It's, I mean, I don't know. I guess I just feel fortunate. I think you got me onto some financial books early on that at least maybe have a basic understanding of certain things. And that's all you really need. Once you have a basic understanding, you're like, okay, I kind of get it. Well, then you, you can figure things out. Yeah. It's kind of like being in the matrix and you don't really fully understand. You haven't decoded the whole thing, but you can kind of like, okay, I, I see the rules. I can kind of operate yeah. within them now. Maybe I don't agree with them, but I can kind of play my game now within these this certain framework. I get it. And I hated when people would always tell me, well, the rich just get richer. And I was like, well, can I have a bit more detail than the rich get richer? Yeah. And now I get it. People with assets tend to get the benefits of the modern financial system before people with only incomes. So it is kind of like the rich get richer. I just hate generic comments without explanation. And I want to share something. What? We looked back to 1974, just so you know this. This was Kyle and I. Uh, we pulled the data from 1974 to today from TREB, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and appreciation from 1974 to end of 2019 or the very end of 2019's data set that we had. When did you do this? Just recently? Well, yeah, while you were gone. 6.2%. Yeah. 6.2%. But if you go back and on, we did a YouTube video on this and we didn't share going back to the 19, it's like 1965, like all the data. Because if you go back to 65, because there was a big run up on property values from 65 to 70, it's over seven. It's like 74 it's crazy. But anyway, from 1974, so the time kind of I'm, I'm born in 73. So till now it's 6.2%. Now incomes, now we went to Stats Canada. Now this is Canadian incomes, not Toronto incomes, but Canadian incomes from 1974 to current day. Oh my God, uh, don't even tell It's me. higher than I thought. Oh really? Yeah, it's 4.6%. Oh, that's not bad. It's not bad, but that 1.6% difference. Compounded. Not only compounded, but compounded off a higher starting point because property, yeah, you know, income's our, our, here yeah, yeah, and then yeah. the property price yeah, is here. Yeah, the still keeps getting bigger. It makes a big difference yeah that that starting point's different and what when is it did you do the number the uh, sorry i'm getting ahead of you yeah did you do the number what does that 1.6 work out that's to our destruction there? of the middle class chart that we already have it i is, forget yeah, what the so, number, so is, right what the number now. is okay i didn't know if you did you but but the, the 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 gap just grows what we did in this time for this particular video is we said um and don't hold me to this but the gap between incomes and asset prices in 1974 was like eight times income and today it's like I want to say like 13 times or something like that. But the gap, like it's it's growing. What is that? So that's like a 50% more income required now. More, yeah. Um, so it's it's just a huge, it's a huge spread. And if you extrapolate it out, it just gets worse and worse and worse. So if you use the whole 
cliche line that the rich get richer. Well, yeah, it's kind of true because people who own assets get the benefits of this financial system more so than people who just depend on incomes. Mm -hmm. Because if you own assets, money yeah. go, money money tends to increase the prices of things where it goes to first. And if money is going uh, is is created on lending, it's typically lent to houses and mortgages. So that area. Gets, I guess that gets, it goes back to because I was trying to think of different. I was trying to think of things outside of real estate, right? Because I'm, well, a business you could create your own asset like a business, yeah, out of thin air. No, I'm just trying to think so because if you borrow, if you borrow to buy something else, it creates money, right? It, let's say it's another asset, but it's not the same when that asset is. So, like, look at gold. Gold's a good example, right? Yeah. So, price of gold's gone up recently, and you know, and it's gone over years, up, down, whatever, whether you like it or not. Um, is besides the point, if you buy gold based on borrowed money, so you've created money, you've yeah. bought an asset, but then you have to pay that off yourself, it's not as effective as if you, to your point, a business or real estate where you have someone else paying off the asset for you, the self-liquidating totally. assets. And when the or dividend, you know what, to be fair. If dividend, dividend stocks. Yeah, dividend paying stocks. Sure. They could be very small. They God, could be I different. stocks. And stocks, I, I get it. It's, stocks mm. are a little bit different because, uh, you know, the thing about stocks to me is it's not just like the stock market. There's, there's The lack of control. It, it is, I was just going to say the exact same thing. It's totally the lack of control, accounting practice. You know, assume the, the board. The, you don't the, know what decisions are being made. The further away your money is from you, the more risk there is. Totally. And you stock, always talk about totally. when you don't have an information advantage or lack of control. That's why I like houses. You kind of have full control. Well, you can make decisions and you can have impact on on. You can have immediate impact on. You can knock it down and build a new house if you want. Yeah, like you, with all this pandemonium going in the stock market today, with everything that you and I have, just real estate related and some precious metals and businesses and stuff, you kind of just like shrug. You're like, yeah, yeah. okay. I'm I wouldn't even be worried to be fair if if, if house like let's say the next thing house prices like took a drastic move downwards or whatever because of the income that the housing generates it, it wouldn't really impact me i wouldn't be excited i wouldn't be like jumping sure. up and down by it but yeah. i'd be like well what a big deal like i'm just gonna hold on to it because i know these rules that we just talked about the rules of the money game and i know what they have to do to create to get the economy back on track and they're gonna have to create more more money, money. And where does that money go? It goes back into assets. And if I, the more assets I own, the more, and the difference, the more benefit I get to the money creation. And the difference between gold and real estate, for example, is that if money is created uh, for lending, real estate is typically one of the number one asset classes where lending is used. And we said in those stats earlier that we shared that 50% of all lending goes to mortgages. So naturally, real estate pr prices benefit the most from this money system because money's flowing there first. Totally. Not everyone's borrowing to buy gold. Do you, do yeah, you know, even though it's an asset class or so real estate specifically income properties, they benefit because most they're the closest to the creation of the money that is happening in any kind of substantial way. Mm -hmm. And in any economy, and depending on the type of real estate you play in, but if you played in the residential side, it would be, again, it goes back to the starter home category, wherever that is you are, that's the most active real estate market the in any place. The most liquid and active, Where yeah. the most money will go to, uh, I guess it's still the most because there's such high high volume. Oh yeah, you can't know right? for sure if it's the I most, can't, but I yeah, can't know. But the probably most, is. the most amount of transactions will happen. Totally. 100% the yeah, most yeah. amount of transactions. So there's the velocity I, money coming into play where it's, it's turning over that type of thing as well, right? Totally. So you get access to that stuff too. So with all of this stuff that's going on in the stock market and stuff, we just thought it'd be a good time to share a couple things. First is that um, the real estate market is typically defined for, this is our opinion, of course, is defined by demand for properties and access to credit. Those are the two 
big, big factors. And if access to credit disappears, real estate prices tend to fall because without access to credit, no new money is being created and real estate is driven by credit lending. So access to credit can go away in two fashions. It can go if the banks stop trusting each other and lending comes to a halt completely or interest rates go so high that it's like not affordable to borrow. So interest rates are super low right now. So we do not have that concern. So the concern becomes, will access to credit go away because the banks don't trust each other and there's a seize up in the financial system. That's something that we just need to kind of be aware of. And we don't know if it's going to happen, but that would be like our worst case scenario. And we should watch for that. On the demand side, the demand in Canada is super interesting. And in the Ontario area and greater Toronto and Golden Horseshoe area, I want to share some stats with everyone right now to just see how crazy the demand rate is right now. So the population growth rate going on in this country right now is 1.4%. It's just over, it's slightly over 1.4%. Okay. Now that might mean, mean nothing to you until I give you some context. I'm going to read off some different regions around the world where you can compare the growth rate to those regions compared to Canada. So here we go. Asia growth rate 0.89%. We are 1.4. Africa 2.52. So they're well ahead of us. Africa is 2.52. We're 1.4. Europe 0.1%. Remember, we're 1.4. Europe is 0.1. Latin America and the Caribbean, 0.92. Remember, we are 1.4. North America as a whole, 0.63 population growth rate. We're 1.4 in this country. Oceania, 1.34. We're 1.4. So after Africa, we are number two. And the some of the other areas like Europe are tiny, 0.1. So I want to share some other stuff because that might still just be like, okay, it sounds interesting. Not, not really that, that big of a deal. But listen to this. The Ministry of Finance in Ontario in the summer of 2019 updated their 2016 census information, not with a new census, but they did more forecasting. And you can find this on the Ministry of Finance website. It's called the Ontario Population Projections 2018 to 2046. And if you Google up this PDF, there's this couple lines in here that are fascinating. This one just blew me away. Listen to this. The greater Toronto area, the GTA, is projected to be the fastest growing region of the province with its population increasing by 3.4 million or 49.6% from 6.8 million in 2018 to over 10.2 by 2046. It's funny. So I did, I just did the math on that, which is what I was, I was trying to look up. So I just did the math on that. It's 121 and a half thousand people every year. So 121,000 people. Yeah. yeah I want to write this 121, down. 121, Because we're going to talk about some other shit. Okay, so 121, 121, like, stop swearing. Eh? I noticed you're swearing a little bit too much. No, I, swear, I just went, look, I just went two weeks with, in Disneyland and on a Disney cruise with my kids. I'm swearing much less now, but now I come hang out with you again. I'm sure it's going to increase again. I get to blame it on you. Bullshit. Um, <laughs> and, but you know what I was just trying to look up? I'm trying to look up the housing starts because I don't have them offhand. They average over you know the last 10 or 20 years for Toronto. I'm trying oh, to yeah, yeah. I love that be data. Curious. Yeah. Because look, if we're adding about 100, just over 120,000 But there's people, more to the story I want to share, but yeah, okay. yeah. But if we're adding just over 120,000 people, we need to be at minimum Right, because the average, how many family units is that going to be? That's going to be I like it's two point something. So let's it's say not it's even three. So but it's going to be at least 60, 50, we could say fifty, sixty thousand. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, and um, yeah, fifty being conservative, sixty totally. probably being more. So like accurate. that's that's a minimum you're going to need. Like not sixty thousand new fa- new units. And that's just Greater Toronto. That's not GT, not GTA. That's great. It's great. This this number that we're talking about is just no. It oh, is this GTA. is Greater Toronto area. Okay, sorry. Okay, so. Is is there another data point there? No, but I'll find it. Yeah, yeah, okay. So now listen to this. On the next um, graphs that they share, you can't see them, but the the immigration 
into Ontario, the projections going forward is like 180,000 people a year. That's just in Ontario. Um, sorry, that's the population growth that, that is primarily being driven by immigration is 180,000 people a year. So population growth, about 180,000 a year, every year for the sort for, uh, foreseeable future. And to Nick's point in the GTA, we're saying like 121,000 um, in the GTA based on some of these numbers, 121,428 or whatever that math was. But there's something weird with these numbers that we want to share. When you look at Canada's population estimates, so the government of Canada in the Q3 data is out for 2019. It's Canada's population estimates third quarter 2019. You can find this on Stats Canada's website. And the, the headline of the latest report is record population growth during the third quarter of 2019. And it talks about that Canada's population increased by 208,000 people during that quarter. And it says this is the first time in Canada's uh, history that the population grew by more than 200,000 people. Okay, so there's that. Now, listen, this is where things get interesting. I want to read you a couple things here. Canada's population increased by 208,234 people from July 1st to October 1st, 2019, mainly driven by influx of immigrants and non-permanent residents. This was the first time that Canada's population increased by more than 200,000 people in a single quarter. And then, um, Nick, we've talked about this a lot here at Rockstar and with members and investors, that there are more than 572,000 non-permanent students here um, on non-permanent visas. Is it visas? Non-permanent status? You have non-permanent status? I don't think it's a visa. Residencies? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Sure. We should know. Yeah. Um, which is a 73% increase from 2014. So 572,000 non-permanent residents of Canada, and it's a 73% increase from only 2014. Now, here's where things get wonky. The Ministry of Finance in, this, uh, in some of their population studies, I have another report here called the Ontario Demographic Quarterly, highlights of the third quarter 2019. And it says that Ontario received 44.3% of all immigrants to Canada. So Ontario receives 44%. Now here's where things get really crazy. If you look at the immigration number, and remember, I just want to be clear here. This is not an anti-immigration talk. Nick and I don't exist without Canada's immigration. Our parents are both immigrants from different countries and around the world. We don't exist if Toronto and Canada didn't exist. So we're not commenting on immigration in a bad way. We're just commenting on facts, all right? So here, um, if you take immigration and add it to the non-permanent resident number that was reported, do I have it handy here? So immigration... Um, I gotta go back here. Give me one sec. Um, I don't, yeah. So 103,000 people in Q3 were immigrate from immigration. 82,000 and change were for, uh, non, oh, Nick, it's non-permanent residents. It says right there, non-permanent residents. So 103 from immigration and 82,000 in Q3 from non-permanent residents. If you add those two numbers together, it's 186,000 people, Nick, in one quarter. Remember you just said 121,000 people in the GTA? Now, this is an Ontario number. Uh, 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 this is an Ontario number I'm reading. But 186,000 people, um, sorry, in Canada in one quarter, 44.3% come to Ontario as per uh, the Ministry of Finance in Ontario's own data. So if I take 44.3% of 186,000 in one quarter, that's 82,000 people in a quarter are coming to Ontario or... 82,000 times four, 329,000 people a year. And the reason this is shocking to me is because most of the headlines in the media are talking about the immigration number 
that's coming to Ontario and how many people are going to come here based on immigration. But no one's taking into account the non-permanent residents. And I have no idea. This could all change, right? Like we have no crystal ball. The government well, it could might say, not increase anymore. It like, might, it might, not, might just they might just replenish. Like some might leave. It might replenish. But we still them. did have but, but, eighty thousand last we, co- in the Q three of two thousand nineteen, uh, and we've seen we felt it. Like let's be we honest. Like it. if you live anywhere and, in the Golden Horseshoe, you felt like in the last five years, you got to think like what did your drive on the highway look like five years ago versus today? When did you have to leave to get the same traffic? How long did it take you? You know, even on the on if you take the GO train every day or whatever public transit you take, how busy is it now versus five years ago? Anyone it's I insane. talk to is like you. It's 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 you feel it. Usually, those types of changes you can't see in that short a time frame. You got to look back twenty years, you know. But it, you can feel it. And I did a little bit of digging. So on our immigration number, the bank, the federal government is going to slightly increase our immigration number, not decrease it. So there's that forecast. But the other one is that in February, who forwarded this to me? Um, it was Keith on our team, Nick. Keith forwarded me something. The work visas that were issued in February of 2020 set a new record for one month. Oh, really? Yeah. So now that's work visas. That's that's under the non-permanent resident. But that means things seem to be kind of c- continuing trending this way. So, uh, and and my, my point is that these people all need a home. They all need to live under a roof. It's driving real estate demand. And there's one last thing I want to share. You know are you this. Are sure? No, I know. I know. Already. I get crazy. I'm pointing with my pen at your head. <laughs> <laughs> um, listen, when my, my family and I were traveling in New York, we get into a, uh, an Uber in New York. And the Uber, Nick, remember this story? Yeah. The Uber driver goes to I've heard her, it about 14 times by now. Geez, listen. <laughs> um, the Uber driver goes to me and says, uh, hey, where are you from? I'm like from Toronto. And he says to me this. This is where he became an immigration expert on Canada in like 30 seconds. He goes, oh. Um, I said, uh, I, he goes, where do you live? I go, Oakville. He goes, oh, I know Oakville. There's like a Sheridan campus there. I go, yeah, there is a Sheridan campus there. And he goes, yeah, all my friends, because this particular gentleman was from India. He had family in New York, so he came to New York area, but all his friends are in the Toronto area. And uh, he said to me um, that he knows people who come into different schools and I'm not picking, I I have no, this isn't something about Sheridan or any other school, but these are the names that just kind of came up passing. So it's just a casual conversation. Um, He said he knows people who are coming into the country of Canada on a non-permanent resident status as a student. Then after one semester, they quit and they get a job and the person they get the job from sponsors them to get status here in Canada. So they're using the Canadian school system to kind of bypass regular immigration policy into the country of Canada. Is that not blow? Like to me, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm in the, this Uber driver is teaching me more about immigration. Yeah, I'm pointing to Carol in the back. I'm like, Carol, are you listening? I'm totally freaking out in the front seat with my kids there and stuff. And, uh, it's crazy. And then now we've done some some well, digging Keith, around and more and more people are saying that's exactly what's happening. Yeah. And Keith on, on our team who immigrated from India, I guess I, I know, a little while ago now, he's been working with us for um, almost, a year. almost a year. And then he came a little bit before that. So maybe a year and a half to, uh, ago or so. Um, he, he said, oh yeah, in India, like that's no one. Like there's, got, there's companies set up to help you navigate, not the, the official immigration process to help you navigate this process to get into the country. Right. And then get and then start working and then hopefully bring family. And it's crazy. And if that's our rules in Canada, that's our rules. And again, I just want to repeat so that we're we're pro immigration. We are pro education. We are pro immigration. It's none of that. We're just trying to figure out where the drivers of so much demand is coming from. That's all. I actually, I actually like Canada's immigration. Canada's immigration system is, is pretty good. Me too. It's, it's it is a pretty point good. Break. Compared, I think it's one of the best. Compared to some of the other options, Agreed. it is it is very good, and we're we're very fortunate to bring a lot of highly skilled immigrants that are coming here, contributing to the economy. And Benefits stuff. So, us. Yeah, yeah, totally. I want to circle back to what that one. Uh, are you done yet? 
No, I just, I just want I just want to make three hundred twenty nine thousand people a year when most people think it's one hundred twenty one thousand in the GTA. I think it's I it could be a multiple of that. Okay. Any other stories? You the want to only thing you? is oh, just sorry. for. Con- I knew, the, I, knew there was no, I know. I know. <laughs> Give me two seconds. Listen, just for context, if if really it's if if it's three hundred twenty nine thousand people a year, what's the population of Mississauga right now? Mississauga is like not even nine hundred thousand, right? Let's say it's nine hundred thousand. That means. Every three years, okay. oh, that was 2017. Okay, so, so yeah, 900. every every three years right now, a new Mississauga is moving into the GTA and Golden Horseshoe area. What does that do for the demand of real estate? It's insane. Okay, so here is that. So yes, okay. And okay I'm gonna, now I'm, I'm going to Go circle ahead. back to the conservative number. So the yeah, 121,000. That was conservative, and we said 50 or 60,000 households. Let's go super conservative and say it's only 50. I'm pretty convinced between the numbers you just shared and the, the household formation numbers, that is definitely more than 50. However, on the, the, the um, housing starts in Toronto, what is this is, where is this from? I don't know the source online here, So, but at the 50 year average is 31,000. Last 10 year average has been more, 36,000. Uh, the 2008 number is over 40,000. But it's, so even if they're doing 40,000, if we needed a, at minimum 50, we think it's higher. There's still a gap in the, every year, there's a gap in the number of housing units being created. Yeah, of 10,000. Leading to the, even the rental, the rental demand, the, the, the purchase demand. And that's exactly what we've seen over this last little run up, right? So that it's, it's the, the, I don't know, the money creation and the, the demand for yeah. this type of stuff is, is, so is important to know. And it's, I guess it's what drives a lot of the different things that, that, that we're looking at. And everyone can make their own decisions. But it's, you know, I, I, these are powerful trends. These trends drive a lot of things. So until these trends change, it's not, sometimes it's not just like, oh, I'm going to just kind of, like you're not just winging something because you have you're giving yourself an advantage to understanding truly what's going on underneath the uh, uh, the surface of everything, right? And beyond the kind of standard headlines that everyone sees, because that stuff is just so I frivolous. I hate the headlines, yeah. and I hate the you know the because they change every day. They just yeah, need, it, and the a, general cliche answers yeah. to stuff. I hate it. Yeah, yeah. That's why we kind of look, look like looking at the data. So the source, just so, you, so uh, to clarify, was CMHC. CMHC did it. Was that's where that was for, from. for housing starts for the housing starts. Yeah. yeah. So I guess so. The biggest trends, like I, I think if we look at the early 2000s, what, what drove a lot of things was like technology, right? And still going to drive, let's face it. I mean, did you hear that one podcast where those two guys, who was it, like the guy, SpaceX guy or whatever was saying that over the next 10 years, we're going to have more techno- technological change than we've had over the last like 20,000 years and it's over the next 10 or something? Anyway, they were going into. There were some crazy. Sounded much smarter speed, than I just said it. But it was really it, the speed of it is just increasing so increasing, much. Right? Yeah. Well, because they use the the uh, a lot of you know different people have used different examples, but I think the iPhone is just only ten years old, right? Something like that. Just it's, it's a little bit more now. Something like that. I think it was like two thousand eight or something. Was it that like long ago? That? Well, no. They were, aren't we on iPhone eleven or twelve or something? Yeah. So one a year. Do yeah, the math. Twelve years, I guess that makes sense. Okay. Eleven. <laughs> so, eleven. Eleven years. Dang. But um, we can talk about money creation and stuff, but don't ask obvious but questions. But anyways, but they're like, look, look, in ten in the last decade, what's changed in technology just just in the last ten years? And they're saying now the technology is moving so much faster, even with more access, more people have access to it, more people have access to faster data, smaller computers, higher computing power, that it's going to even escalate beyond that. And if you look at the last ten years versus the previous fifty, how much kind of was done? Right, because it's it's these stupid little uh, computers in your pockets. They've changed everything. You have access to so much so immediately. What changes now? Like, what's next with it all? Agreed. And so, uh, if we have a, this trend, so if the technologies have been a big trend in our lives, but then we have this other trends in our lives that, in this particular area, we have explosive population growth coupled with loose monetary policy, where 
money is being flushed into the system by a lot of people borrowing to buy property to satisfy the population growth that needs shelter, you got these massive trends. So instead of talking about like, oh my gosh, I wonder why property prices are going up and stuff. To me, it's like, this is something that you might want to consider to get in front of. And, then, and to me, why this is even more important, like even today, because we were just talking briefly about like, you know, we're, we're recording this at a time when the stock markets have just kind of, they had a rough week last week. They just kind of doubled down. Now, I think I think the TSX closed down 10%. The other, the, the S&P was 7% or something. I, I don't know, maybe the Dow was 7%, I forget. But these big drops in the market, it, with these types of trends, when these these have these have happened in the past, now governments have shown that they've come out with a stimulus stimulating a monetary policy. So last week they announced half point rate cuts to try to stimulate the economy. Maybe they have to announce not more quantitative easing. Maybe, maybe there's going to be another rate cut. All that is more easy monetary money policy, which means more money being created typically to try to spur the economy. So if you can get in front of these trends, like to your point. This is a time when it could even be more important to kind of understand what's going on because there could be more things coming to flood the market. Totally. And then I want Nick, I just wanted to kind of start to wrap up at this point. At 6% appreciation, and the historic number from 1974 to today is 6.2. So at 6% appreciation, the price of real estate doubles every 12 years. So, so that seems insane, except if I look at the price that I paid for my house when I bought it now, the current house I live in, I think I bought it seven years ago, seven and a half maybe. And we're yeah, so you're halfway, you're just over halfway, halfway through a cycle. And it hasn't quite, I mean, it had doubled at one point for 2017 was crazy and it kind of came back down, but it's probably pretty close because we've had higher appreciation, the 6% more recently have, yeah. and it's doubled in less than that. But to hear it, when you just hear that, I think you're like, oh, that seems crazy. Like, it's not going to double every 12 years because how's the $500,000 house in 25 years really going to be worth 1.5 million? Like it's not going to be worth 1.5 million. It makes no sense. But if you look at what's happened just recently, it's happening, right? It just, it happens so slowly year after year that sometimes you kind of miss it. It's like, that's the kind of evil part of yeah, all this. Like if you're not part. on it, you miss it. Yeah. And, and, and just for another way to look at it is that if we all, what's six times 12, Nick? 72. So like if, if you're planning to live to your, your old, you're 72, that means in your lifetime, properties will double six times by design, like by historical standards, they're going to double six times in your lifetime. So this idea when people look around saying, I don't understand why property prices are so expensive. Like you have to understand this is his, a historical precedent that exists. This is the way the system is set up this to is, do it through the government inflationary this is, policy. This is really. our modern economic policy. This is how, this is how modern, the modern money system works. So no one should be caught off guard when everyone looks around saying, I can't believe property prices have gone up again. It's like, what are you talking about? Like this is actual, there's historical precedent for this. So it shouldn't catch anyone off guard and incomes do not keep pace. And it's why people who own assets in this environment, especially self-liquidating assets like good income properties, get ahead. Because those things have this historical precedent to kind of keep going up. And it doesn't mean you can't, you don't, you're not short-term paranoid. I just want to be clear here. We're not telling anybody to run out and buy property all willy-nilly and just buy anything they can. You always have to buy short properties where you're short-term paranoid that even if crap hits the fan for one year, two years, three years, five years, you can hold that property. 
So our whole idea is that you're always short-term paranoid with real estate, but you're long-term optimistic. So you get in on properties like, Nick, how many times have we bought a property and we said, we will not buy that one if we don't think we can uh, own it for 10 years. Even yeah. if our plan for that property is to flip it or rent it and sell it. Yeah, if the numbers seem, oh my God, this is a great opportunity, like an in and out thing. We're like, ah, what if that doesn't work out? We want to make sure it's a good property. We don't want yeah. to just get greedy based on some numbers on paper. And we always said 10 years. Would we own this property for 10 years, even if our plan was to open it for, own it for 18 months? Right. So be, always be short term paranoid and long term optimistic. So anyway, well, we covered a lot of ground there, I think. Anything else? No, I don't have a good story to share for that. I can say another time that you've heard 10 other times. <laughs> so listen, as you know, I don't know when you're listening to this, but if the stock market's going crazier or if it's all kind of back to normal and stuff, just remember the headlines kind of mean nothing. Dig into the, what are the big trends in your life over the next 10 years? Can you put yourself in front of those trends? What are some of the big money trends? Yeah. What are some of the population trends? And and to, to the original, I guess, point where we started with the, with this podcast was understanding how money's created into the world. And if you want to kind of get into get in front of that or kind of put your hat in that stream of money to kind of collect the, 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 the rewards. You want. Yeah. It's kind of, yeah, I was going to say the kind of amount you want, you got to get, get in front of it that way. Yeah. And I think, you know, we always talk about living life on your own terms. And I think to, to truly live life on your terms, you have to understand the rules of the system that you're playing in. And that's why I like this stuff, because if I understand how the world works, then when I see a stock market collapse like this, I'm like, oh, I bet I can predict their next place. They're going to reduce interest rates and they're likely going to put in some monetary stimulus with some quantitative easing and then some fiscal stimulus. Yeah. They'll come up with infrastructure projects and say, we're going to spend, spend, spend to heal the economy. Well, when I, you know what? So, so when I bought my last house that we were just talking about, about whatever it was, seven and a half years ago, the, the, like a family house, um, I wanted to keep the current house and at that time it was a bit of a financial stretch because with other investments and stuff I'm like man I, I want to hold on to my the, the house we're living in and start renting it out but I, I want this other home and it, it felt like a stretch because I wasn't cashing out any equity I'm like man I don't know it just feels like a big mortgage that I'm putting on it right now and I remember that time talking and you know when we were talking about it and we had already started reading different financial stuff and you asked you're like look what do you think how much do you think this is going to be like at the end of the day, you know, seven or 10 years from now, is this money going to be worth more to you or less to you? And it's because, and, and it, it kind of really hit, I'm like, yeah, it's a good point. Like in 10 years from now, that, that amount that I'm borrowing because of all these, these, yeah. these principles that we we're talking about that we were trying to learn about and understand then, I'm like, yeah, they're just going to try to inflate this money away. So like the, however many hundreds of thousands I owe that, you know, that was, you know, seven years ago when I bought it, it seemed like a much smaller amount now because everything's kind of been inflated away and it came to fruition. So it was a very valuable lessons to understand when at that time when I was making that decision, and it wasn't even an investment decision. It was like a family home decision, personal finance, nothing about a rental property or any other assets or anything mm -hmm. else. It was just my own for my own family's well-being, understanding these trends really has really, really made a huge difference in my life. Right. So I ended up getting um, a house I probably wouldn't have got if I didn't really kind of think about that, which is bigger than we thought we needed at the time. And probably really big. It's bigger than we need now. But now that we have it, we kind of like it. So we'll, we'll, we'll hang Keep out it. there. We'll hang out there for a little bit. And I think that it's a weird thing. Like, let's say you finish school, you start working at, let's say, 25, 26 years old or something like that. And you look around at house prices and you're like, you know what? I'm going to start saving because that million dollar house across the street from my parents' house, I've always thought I could live in there and it'd be great. But then by the time they're ready to buy it, let's say 12 years later at 37. So if you start working at 25, let's That's say it's two million. It's two million. And incomes haven't haven't met, kept and their you're pace. you're saving by just putting it in the bank. And you're without, and usually it, not getting a very good return at all. So you lose. Yeah. That's why you need to know this stuff.
Anyway, I'm starting to get On pissed. On that happy note. There we go. <laughs> All right. That's it. We'll wrap. Hey, everyone. Hopefully you enjoyed that episode with me and Nick. Um, remember, if you want some real estate information, you can get free copies, digital downloads of our books at Rockstar Inner Circle forward slash books. That's Rockstar Inner Circle forward slash books. And there's one b- book, big book in particular, the Canadian Real Estate Investing Blueprint. This particular book has some really good information in on rental properties, how to find them, how to fill them, rent to own properties, how that particular strategy works, student rental properties. This is information that's taken us a decade to figure out. We've condensed it all into this book. You can get a free digital copy of it at rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash books. That's it for now. Until next time, your life, your terms. <laughs>